I, uh, I had this secret thought. Um, I don't know if we can keep this in this room. Uh, I mean that. So you can't tell the person that we're going to do this to about what we're going to do. You just have to do it, okay? Um, today is uh, Pastor Ben's birthday. Uh, he's not here right now. He's, uh, he's, I think, somewhere in the middle of the air over the Midwest, landing in Chicago soon. He's on his final class for his uh, D-men. And it's his birthday, and I thought this, this could be really beautiful, okay? Now, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but if you'd like to join me in this, um, I texted him this morning to say happy birthday to him, and he was, I think, about ready to get on the uh, plane, and, uh, and he said, oh, I almost forgot it was my birthday. Now, what I was thinking is that we could remind him that it is his birthday by us each individually or, you know, in group text, probably individually would be better. Uh, for you to personally share in a group text or in, or in, in a personal text or an email um, how you're praying for Ben and what you're encouraged about what you see in his life. Could you imagine? Wouldn't that be cool to be like overcome as he's landing in Chicago with loving words and encouragement? So just an idea. You don't have to do it, but I thought it could kind of be crazy. Is, does anyone want to do that? You are allowed to during the first five to ten minutes of this sermon to send texts or emails, as long as they're to Pastor Ben, okay? If you don't, if you don't have his contact info, it's on the back of your bulletin. You'll find it on there. And uh, this is the time and place. So I just thought that would be great. Um, his status is that it's his birthday. Many of our status. Anybody else's birthday in here right now? All right. It's all of our unbirthday right now. So um, I just hope we can encourage him and love him that way. Uh, to be served... Or to serve is a, is a humbling thing for us as, uh, as humans. And uh, we have a lot to learn about how to be served and to serve. And so uh, I hope that today when we dig in this text here, you'll be, uh, you'll be surprised and encouraged by how bad the disciples are at what we're called to do. Um, because many of us struggle when it comes to serving. And uh, we often are found striving for our own greatness and uh, trying to make a name for ourselves rather than humbly serving behind the scenes. Um, I don't know if you ever heard the, the saying that Muhammad Ali said. He said, I am the greatest. And he said, I said that before I even knew it was true. You, you know that? He had, a lot of, he had a lot of stingers, a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, but he, he kind of was a bit, you know, obviously he's a great boxer. We know that. But he also was quite the drama king. He had a lot. He would always boast about what an amazing human being he was, at, let alone he was a great boxer also. And so he would boast in his greatness, and he would say again and again, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. You should watch his uh, speech on YouTube about how he is the greatest. What's, uh, what's amazing about him is that he kind of perpetuated that, uh, but the reality is we know as Christians that people who are the greatest don't talk like that. Uh, they don't talk like that when they're walking around with their friends. They don't say, hey, I'm the greatest. They just they just live a great life. Um, one story that I was struck by earlier this week was the story of St. Patrick. Um, some of you may know the story really well, some of you might not. Uh, I love it in that he became a servant twice. Uh, first time he was a slave. He was the age of 16 years old. Matt, put yourself in his shoes, okay? 16 years old, he had a Christian, Christian parents, but he, he was not a, a, a person of faith. He didn't believe in Christ at this point. And uh, some Irish pirates invaded the coast of England, 
And uh, they took him as a slave, 16 years old, all of his hopes, all of his dreams dashed, and he was sold to an incredibly mean farmer. And his, and his whole role was to live out in the fields with the sheep, keeping them safe. So when it's cold, I mean, the, the, the weather in, in Ireland is fairly similar to what it's like out here in Portland. Imagine that your role, and you're not really well dressed, but your role is to be out there with the sheep when it's raining, when it's sunny, when it's cold. And for years, I think it was six years, he served as a slave to this man. And uh, during those six years, he had a, his best times were times alone, okay? When he was with his master, he was beaten and was mistreated and abused. And he slowly learned the language, but most of the time he was there with, with the sheep. And he would, uh, he would, every day he would go out there, he began to, began to pray and talk to God and began to find that God himself was, uh, was near. And it, it's an incredible story because after a, a fairly short season, he, he had come to this place of faith in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and he was uh, then directed six years into his, his time of, of being a slave. He had no idea where he was. Um, he had no idea at all. And he, he was told by God in a vision to leave and just to, to start walking one direction. He started walking 100 miles and he gets to the coast. He finds a, he barely gets on a boat and then he has quite the adventures to get back home and he finally gets home and he's free. He's no longer a slave. His status is, he walks, into, he walks home and his parents are thrilled. And they basically tell him, they look him in the eye and they say, we don't want you to ever leave again. We are so thankful to God that not only are you did you live through that, but that you came to faith in Christ during that time. And they were so grateful that they wanted him to stay there with them in England for the rest of his life. Because he had experienced an incredibly hard life. And uh, his lot and his status had been rough for years. Now, you and I, when we look at our little lives, I believe most of us sitting in this room have not experienced six years of slavery. A bleak existence. And yet our status, when we look at that kind of a life, where we look at someone who has a, maybe a, a more well-to-do life than, than, than we have, that we often compare statuses and we say, how do I add up to this person? What is my reputation in comparison to that person? How important am I in comparison to that brother or sister? And we're going to be, we're going to be going into a, a really thick pa- passage right now. And uh, I want to let you know right now that I'm not going to touch on every nuance. There's some interesting demoniac stuff that goes on. There's weird things that go on medically, and it's hard to understand it all. But one of the things I want to zero in, because if I started, if we start breaking down every piece and part, I could easily spend through the lunch hour in this text. I'm not going to do that. And I could also, I would kind of love to hang out in it through the dinner hour. Do you got any buyers with that? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to focus in on this idea of status in this passage. I want to look at two things with you when we dig into this middle section of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark, is I want to look at an honest update on our status. I want to look at an honest update on our status and then how our status changes. So an honest update on our status and then how our status changes. And how it's changed, not just by us, but how it's changed by Jesus Christ. So I want to work through, a, through this uh, particular passage section by section, so I'm not going to read all the front end. But we're going to look uh, through, through this morning, we're going to look through Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 37. So if you want to flip there, um, that'd be great. I'm just going to ask for God's help and wisdom as we get into his word. 
Father, we praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you're alive and well. And thank you that you can and do regularly work in our lives. I pray for humility for each one of us to think of ways that we can serve you and others. Christ, give us hearts that are humble, that are broken. Lord, as we look at the disciples, help us not to look down on them, but help us to to look up to Christ and to recognize the need to grow and learn from him. Lord, give us humility. We trust you to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that when it comes to uh, the idea of status, one of the things that's helpful is for us to do comparisons. And before we get into kind of the depths of this passage, remember that we were on a mountaintop last week, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, can I get another one of these headsets? This seems to be struggling a bit. Um, we were up on a, they were up on the mountaintop, Jesus fellowshipping with his Father and enjoying communion with God. Not only that, there was Moses, there was Elijah. You got the representatives of the law, the representatives of the prophets there with Jesus Christ, and he's fellowshipping with the Father. The Father speaks his delight over the Son. It's a high point. It is a mountaintop experience that we get there. And Jesus, we know he's absolutely incredible. When you, when you read that, you say, if that actually happened, that changes how I'm going to relate with Jesus Christ and how I'm going to relate with God. So from that mountaintop experience, I'm not certain how we're going to do this. One second here, guys. Almen and the uh, words people. Thank you, Tad Harlan. Thank you, Steve. Everybody working back there, thank you guys. Um, So they're up on the mountain, and uh, they come down from the mountain. And even though they come down from the mountain, as you read this passage, you realize that people are amazed at Jesus for some reason. We don't even know the why. It's not that his, his, we don't know if his face is shining. People don't seem to indicate that. But look at how Jesus interacts with people in this passage. Start with verse 14. We'll just read the first couple of verses. He says, and when they came to the disciples... They saw, again, this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that is Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now what is going on there? I don't know. I do not know. But Jesus' first question is he asked them, what are you guys arguing about with them? Now, Jesus is, apparently the crowd knows now, not only that Jesus does amazing things, but that he is amazing. Up till now in the Gospel of Mark, people responded with amazement whenever he did something, when he multiplied bread, when he healed a person. But now Jesus just shows up on the scene, and people are amazed at him, just at him, that he's there. They're thrilled that he's there. And he hasn't done anything yet. That's a bit of a change in the Gospel of Mark. And here, as he's, as, he's, uh, as he's about ready to engage with this person who has a huge problem, he turns to his disciples who are in a very, uh, a very interesting scenario, and they're just arguing with scribes. You come off this mountaintop talking with Moses, talking with Elijah, and the people that you're, are gonna, you're passing the baton to are arguing with the scribes. Now, Jesus doesn't argue with the scribes. He wouldn't give them the airtime for that. But somehow, these people are arguing with the scribes. And we learn later on that it, it probably has to do with the fact that they weren't able to heal this man. 
that there was a, there was a, there was a father who brought his son to, these, to the disciples with the hopes that he would be healed, and he, they weren't able to. So probably right in the front and center of what they're so consumed with is the question of, why can't we heal this person? Why can't we do what Jesus has always done? And what's amazing is that they're, just, they're sitting here, they're arguing, they're debating, and, and it's, just like, it's just incredible the comparisons here. You've got Jesus in perfect fellowship with the Father, absolutely, the Father absolutely pleased with him, and you step down off the mountain, and you have disciples debating and arguing and bickering. And the whole time, the whole time there's this father and this son who's suffering, who's in absolute anguish, who's trying to figure out how to make it through another day with the suffering that they're under. And the disciples are debating about why they are powerless and why they can't do what Jesus would be able to do. You, you read the, the interactions and you hear the desperation of the father. Read it, read it in verse 17. It says, And some of, someone from the crowd, this is the father, he answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever he, it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So you get this like downward slope from this mountain, the arguing disciples, and this father who, whose faith is now shaken, not because of Jesus, but because of his own disciples. They apparently, he's seeking out Jesus, and he comes to the disciples of Jesus, and the disciples of Jesus cause doubt to shadow his mind. I don't know if you, you may have experienced this before. Sometimes when you're seeking after Jesus and you go to somebody who, who you think is going to help you, and he's a disciple of Jesus, so this person's a disciple of Christ, and you go to him and you share something that's going on in your life, and what they say and what they do is so incredibly unhelpful. Have you ever had that happen? It's, it's, it, is not a, it is not an unheard of thing. I mean, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty clear that the disciples royally mess up regularly. Now, I want to just encourage you and I that wherever you're at in this journey with Christ, you might have messed up really bad yesterday. But what's beautiful is that there is incredible hope that Christ is still at work, and he's going to teach these disciples who cast doubt on this desperate father. And Jesus, when he turns to them, and he gives this update on the state of, I think, really humanity, and he calls them this faithless generation. I don't think he's just talking to the father. Obviously, the father is struggling with his faith. I don't think he's talking just to the son. I don't think he's just talking to, the, to his own disciples, but I think it's to everybody, the scribes. He, he uses a very large word when he says generation. It either means this, the people who lived during this time or this entire nation of people. But he looks at them and he calls them faithless, and, and he's grieved, and he, he says, he doesn't speak often like this in the Gospels, but here, he's gone from this incredible rem remembering the fellowship he's had with the Father forever, and he says, how long am I to bear with you? And the disciples here, the entire time, they haven't even, according to Jesus, they haven't even prayed. They haven't even prayed. They've debated with people, but they have not prayed to God. It's kind of, it, it's incredible this is the case, and yet 
If you've ever been to a Bible college, you know this is not that weird. There are people, and, and I myself have been one of them, who are willing to debate for hours on the finer theological points of how demons exist and why we can't do this and can't do that. But th- if you were to inquire in terms of like their prayer before the living God, it, they would rather debate for four hours than pray for four minutes. And my friends, this spirit is prevalent in not, not in just in Bible colleges, but in humanity, in us, in the church, where we're willing to discuss the Bible, we're willing to debate things, but, but are we willing to pray? Because that's where Jesus zeroes in on all this. Look at what it says to the Father. The Father himself gets desperate after he says, after he rebukes him, this, this place of unbelief. And, and, the, and, he, and he says this to him. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, this is verse 20, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell down onto the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And you got to hear compassion in Jesus' question here. And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, now don't hear harshness here. Here he's trying to get this man's faith centered on him. He says, if you can, that is speaking of himself, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. Now you get to this point in the story, Jesus has come from this mountaintop, he sees his disciples debating and struggling. He sees the faithlessness of his day. And now, as it were, there's a dead boy in front of them. You see how quickly spiritual highs get to places that are very low. And here, Jesus himself, in a bit of anguish, says, how long am I going to bear with you? And yet he deals with it. He directly addresses it. He, he confronts this. And when you and I look at all this, this struggle, this, this, this lack of faith, this faith, you, you look at the man, I think he's a prime example for, for, I think, most all of us, when he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That right there is a prayer that Jesus Christ loves to listen to. Because if, if we're totally honest, faith is not something that some people perfectly share and that doubt is something that everyone else has. They're not two camps like that. They're, in our own heart, there is faith and doubt constantly at war within us. And that's a good thing, because there's a lot of things that we could believe that are totally wrong, and we should actually be doubting. And there are some things that we should hold to with all of our heart, with all that we are. Doubt is not a bad thing if we doubt the right things. There's a philosopher by the name of uh, Michael Novick, and, and, and he said uh, about doubt and, and faith, he says that doubt is 
not so much a dividing line that separates people into two different camps as it is the razor's edge which runs through every soul. Every one of us, if we're honest this morning and we see this story of this father who's so deeply concerned with his own son, we recognize that this has been us before with our own families, with people that we love, where we are fighting for faith and we recognize the doubt that is within us. In all this, this honest look at the state of humanity and what we're like, um, I love it. Right after this amazing miracle happens and Jesus steps aside and apparently quickly into a house, Jesus' disciples have one particular concern. <laughs> look what their concern is in verse 28 and 29. It says, when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. They didn't want to make a big show of this, just between Jesus and them. They said, why could we not cast it out? Why could we not? Of all the questions you're going to ask Jesus at this point, notice how focused it is on, on themselves. There's no sort of like, Jesus, how did you do that? It's, why could we? We disciples who have done this at some point in the past, why could we not do this? You see, the, the focal point is so entirely on themselves, even when they're asking Jesus for understanding about what was the problem. It's incredible. And then Jesus kindly, he just says to them, he zeroes it in on one primary thing, and he says, this kind, apparently this kind of demon, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples who, who had a lot to learn from Jesus hadn't been praying. <laughs> Jesus had been up on the mountain for a couple days, and they had forgotten to seek God. They had forgotten to pray. It's incredible. I mean, it's not that incredible, though, if you and I are honest. How many times, don't raise your hand, but in your own heart, raise your hand. How many times have you forgotten to pray? I'll just, I don't know how many times, but I forgot to pray this week so many times. So many times. It's incredible how easily we start depending on ourselves and our own strength and think that we can just, we can just go it alone. That we've got this covered. And yet Jesus Christ, he says, you can't do anything. In some, in some scenarios, you will be able to do absolutely nothing unless you're praying. Now there are situations that you and I face even today, in, in the battle with faith and doubt in your own soul. There are battles that you and I cannot face or do well unless we pray. Here we see the disciples were prayerless, but Jesus was constant in prayer. Often we see examples of him praying all night, getting up early in the morning to seek the Father. And he, he's coming down off this mountain. What we know from the other Gospels that, that Peter, James, and John were actually sleeping while Jesus was fellowshipping with the Father. And this huge, amazing mirror, uh, just this sign of God himself showing up. And they were all sleeping and they wake up. And Jesus is having this incredible fellowship with the Father. Most of us are, we easily sleep when it comes to prayer. But we have to. And I want to say the central Bible, we, you and I, in our own personal, in our prayer closets, where not a single person sees what you do or say, whether you're checking Twitter or whether you're actually checking with the Almighty, you know, whether you're checking Facebook or you're opening up the Psalms, 
like God alone who sees those secret places of your heart, when you're totally alone, if you and I, if we as a church don't become a praying church that's desperate for God, the truth is we will not be able to be a light in Portland. There are demons and there are powers of darkness that are strong enough and cunning enough that unless we become a praying people, we will not be able to face the kind of darkness that there is surrounding us. We have to, in our own heart, resolve that we need to learn to pray. Of all the things that we see in the New Testament that Jesus' disciples asked to learn, it's amazing. you got the Son of God right in front of them. There's so many questions I would want to ask him, but there's so few things recorded that they actually ask him. But they don't actually ask him, they never ask him, how should I read the Bible? They never ask Jesus that. They never ask Jesus, Jesus, how should I preach a sermon? Teach us how to preach like you preach. They never ask that. They actually don't even ask, Jesus, teach us how to disciple people. Teach us how to disciple people. The one thing they ask, and I think it was because this is who Jesus was, and they saw he was unique in this, is the one thing that they asked is, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. They recognized that Christ had a kind of communion with the Father that they couldn't get on their own. And they needed him to teach them how to pray. We have to get settled in our own soul, in the privacy of our own hearts, in the privacy of our own homes, in our offices, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, unless we, ourselves, unless I, myself, pray. And recognize prayer is not an addendum to the mission that God has, but it is central to what God wants us to do. We're going to work in vain. Beautiful uh, story I heard this week, and we had this conference here called Prayer, Prayer Connection with Missions Connection. It was awesome. I wish every single one of you could have been here this weekend, Friday and Saturday. It was, it was awesome. We're, we're going to continue to host it, God willing, next year also. If, uh, if you even slightly are interested, I'm going to send out a, a when, we fit, when we settle on the date, Saved the date, and it was an incredible time this weekend. But someone told a story about this tribe who'd come to faith in Christ, and they were growing in Christ, and they were loving the Word, and they were, and they were praying. And, and they'd started this habit, that, and it was, it was a village where there's just simply huts, right? So they had, the, they had their hut, and whenever they would, whenever they would, they would pray, they would, they would go out on kind of a walk, and they have a particular path they each would take. Not like one trail, but their own private trail, and they'd walk through the jungle and through the grass, and and they, would, and they would take this particular trail as they prayed. It was their own prayer trail. And whenever someone wasn't praying consistently, grass would begin to grow on the trail. And so it was kind of like a built-in accountability, you know? Like, are you praying? How's your trail? So they would ask each other, is there grass on your trail? Is there grass on your trail? When they were asking the question, are you, are you praying? And I, and, I, and I fear, and I see it in my own heart, in my life. I look, I say, is there grass on the trail? I would say, there's, there's a lot of grass. There's certain maybe 50 feet, maybe 50 yards of clear grass, but there's definitely not a mile. There's definitely not a mile of, cl of clear trail. I don't walk that long in prayer. Yet Jesus says there are some things that you and I will never be able to do unless we pray. And I believe that has a huge impact on our work here in Portland. 
Jesus himself, as we continue to think about this, this state he was in and, and our own status in comparison to him, Jesus, is, Jesus had status and strength in this passage like nobody else. But it was the kind of status that we should see. But the disciples in this passage are full of weakness and fear. Look at what they do. After Jesus himself confronts them on this, he reminds them of what he had taught them once in, in chapter 8. It says this, that they went on from there, from this house that they were at, and they passed through Galilee. Jesus is making a beeline straight to Jerusalem. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, and he was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Sometimes we can, uh, we can think that just a, a little bit of time alone with Jesus and everything will kind of get cleared up. And uh, when you look at this passage, and, and our lives will make sense, and, and God will, God will kind of lead us, and everything will be up and up with the Lord. But, but notice what happens in this interesting passage. They're totally alone with Jesus. And, and, and he's, he's led them deliberately this way. In verse 30, it says he, doesn't, he didn't want anybody else to be around him. He's just with the disciples. He's probably taking little side roads and not the main road, but he's deliberately focusing time with his disciples. And as he's doing that, as, he, as they have this one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus, I mean, imagine what this would be like. There's 12 of you it, within a pr private workshop with Jesus Christ. You're just alone. He's there, you're there. And you want to hear from him, and, you, and, you, and, he's, and he's there walking privately with you, teaching you. Think of the things that you would want to know. And yet here in this passage, they're totally alone with him, and it says this, but they did not understand the saying that he had taught them because they were afraid to ask him. <laughs> Same problem. Same problem in the previous passage. They were afraid to talk to Jesus. <laughs> about what he was communicating. They were afraid to ask him. Now, I don't know. I, you, could, you could try to think a little bit why. Was it because Jesus was intimidating? Maybe. He might have been very passionate, very intense. We don't know what his personality was like in that way. But, but I don't think that it was that Jesus was intimidating, like unapproachable. But I think that actually it was that the disciples were afraid to approach him. He keeps talking about things like death, crucifixion, being killed. He's talking like this. When a, when a friend starts talking like that, you're trying to figure out, what are they, are they for real? Are they not for real? I think they were afraid, not so much of Jesus and talking to him, but afraid of the topic that he had brought up, that he himself was going to suffer in this way. And they didn't, they didn't dialogue with Jesus because, at least in their minds, when it came to Christ's status, there was no way that any of this could, not, could, could be a reality. It had to be some kind of parable, some kind of story. Some of us, some of you this morning, you may be in a, in a more similar place than, than you may want to first really, you may not really want to admit this. But if you pause and you reflect on why is it that I don't want to think about Jesus Christ? Why is it that I don't want to be totally alone without any hums, bells, whistles without my phone and just totally alone with Jesus. Why is it that I don't want that to be the case? Why, am I, why do I not seek that out? 
And it may be if, if you look in the secret place of your heart, it may be that you don't want to ask him about what he's communicating to you. That you don't want to honestly stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, what have you been trying to speak to me that I've been ignoring day after day, week after week? We don't want to consider it because we're afraid of what he has to say to us. Maybe some of us also this morning, maybe you, 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 you recognize, maybe you rarely open the Bible, and it may be not so much that the Bible is an old book that has interesting sayings and it's hard to understand, and maybe it, it may be just that you're afraid to ask God what he's saying to you when you open the Bible. It can be intimidating, and, and you and I have to deal with our own fears that God has something to say to us and that we have to pay attention. One of the most destructive tendencies, I think, in the body of Christ, in the church, is when we, when we value arguing or debating with one another or with the scholars of our day, and we don't value taking time to ask God. Would you be more likely to go to a debate between an atheist and a Christian? Or between this politician or that politician? Or would you be more likely to be found alone with your Bible open in your room? My friends, all of our hearts, my heart, inclines towards watching the next YouTube video and the next debate and the banter and the bickering and the argument. I'll just say, most news stations is arguing like we see here in the New Testament about who's the greatest, which one's the most important. And yet, we don't come before God. And I want to just encourage you and I to start resolving to ask him, to ask him for help. Notice what the right in the dead center of this, this section that we're studying is this man who stands with doubts and struggles, and he asks God. He, say, he admits both, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, God, I, I doubt and I want to believe. And God, I don't understand. I, I think if you, unless you and I become honest with our own struggles and start talking like that, the truth is it's going to be really hard for us to enjoy fellowship with the living God. So I just encourage you, Say, Lord, when was the last time I dealt with some of the things that I've been doubting? When was the last time I admitted to you, God, that I don't understand? It's probably one of the most healthy things for us to admit we don't understand. And, and also, even in terms of the church, the church body, miscommunication is going to happen at Central Bible Church. And it's not because we want to miscommunicate. It's, it actually, it's because, I mean, think of this, okay? Jesus Christ is right there with his own disciples. He's there with his 12. He teaches them clearly and plainly. But, look at what it says in verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I just want to encourage you, and maybe all of us can resolve this as a church, that, that when there's something we're wondering about, when there's something that we want to understand or a miscommunication, just to directly ask the people involved. To not assume the worst, but assume the truth is if with Jesus and his disciples there could be misunderstanding, my friends, there's going to be misunderstanding all over the place. All over the place because we are none of us. None of us are Jesus, but all of us are the disciples. God help us. 
God help us. Now how is it, how is it here that our status can be dealt with and changed? Because there's this striving that we see in this passage, and there's an undercurrent that comes up in this passage in verse 33. Look at this last paragraph with me. In chapter 9, verse 33, it says this. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But again, (laughs) they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. One of those simple conversations. You kind of wonder what the conversation was like. I imagine Peter saying something like, I'm clearly one of the greatest because he, Jesus, whenever he's alone, he wants me to be with him. I mean, I went up on the mountain with him. I don't even want to tell you what we saw because I can't, but we, it was awesome. And he asked me to come, and James and John were like, well, he asked us to come too. I mean, you can imagine, you can imagine the debate going on. He says, well, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? I am the one that said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus, do you remember what he said to me? He said to me, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you guys remember that? And then I imagine Thaddeus turning to Peter. He doesn't talk very often, but he said this. He says, Peter, do you remember what he said after that? Get behind me, Satan. Now the debate just rages, and they're all going back, all the exchanges they've had with Jesus, who's better, who's worse, and there is grounds for everyone's argument. What's amazing with this kind of argument about greatness is that we all, in our own mind, in our own image, we've already tailor-cut just the perfect suit of greatness, and it just so happens to fit ourselves. Like, you know what greatness looks like? Look in the mirror, Peter. Look in the mirror, Daniel. There is greatness right there. Every one of us, we want to see greatness in the mirror. Part of it is, it's, this is where it gets hard to deal with. Part of it is that we are made in God's likeness, in his image. And, and there's this part of us that we are great. We are beautiful. There's a greatness to us, to being image bearers. And yet, there's so much that's flawed in that image that we end up accepting everything we see because it's so nearby us, and we don't see the very glory and the image of Jesus Christ himself. It's so sad how often we do this. I have in my, I have in my office, some of you maybe have seen it, I have a mirror. I have the mirror because sometimes my hair looks crazy, and I don't even know it. And my wife helps me with that, but she's sometimes not here. So I have this mirror, and, and, I, and I put it up right, right about where, where my face is at. I put one other thing on the mirror. I put a metal, an old metal Superman figure right there. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Superman. I think that's pretty cool. Now, I I thought of it, you know, it was a pastoral move, I assure you. Whenever anybody comes to visit my office, I say, look in the mirror. What do you see? You're better than you think you are. No, I'm just joking. I do not do that with people. But I genuinely have thought about doing that, but I don't think it would help that much. Because we need a better image than just some Superman figure when we look in the mirror. We need the image of Jesus Christ to change us and deal with us. What I love in this passage, in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, he himself confronts the, the root of their idolatry, their desire to be served rather than to serve. But he does something here that's stunning and it's compelling and that we need to pay attention to. He sets a child 
right in the middle of all of their banter, all their debate about greatness. And he just puts a little kid in front of them. Now, I imagine that's got to be intimidating for the kid. And I, I'm not certain if I'm going to be able to pull this off or not, but I'm just kind of curious. Are there any kids who are here right now? Do we have any kids who are here? Anybody? Got one kid, two. I'm curious, okay, if, if you're a kid, can you just raise your hand? I want to see if there's any kiddos. One, two, three. Okay, can I, would, have any of you kids ever dreamed or hoped to talk in a microphone up here? Have you guys ever thought, I would love to do that? <laughs> no? None of you have? Are you sure? You're not a kid. I'm so sorry. I would, I could see you a young lady. I would, I, I, wouldn't that be insulting? I think that would be, what are you like? 18 years old? 16. All right, well, I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm just, you notice what just happened. There are sometimes kids that have a certain extra measure of boldness, but most kids don't want the spotlight. They're intimidated by it. They don't want to be front and center. They might enjoy it a little bit, but the truth is they're not looking for acclaim and fame. They just want to be near the one that they love. Now, my own daughter was afraid of coming up here just now. I trust she still loves me. You know what I'm saying? Adea, do you still love me? All right, good. Well, the point is, though, is that there is, there is this tendency in each one of us when it comes to kids, where kid, we have to recognize kids don't fight for themselves in the same way that adults do. They fight in their own special way. But what's interesting about kids is every single child Every single kid, when you, if as an adult, you recognize that they have all these needs, there's always opportunities to serve. And I think that one of the reasons Jesus set this child right in front of them all is because they themselves needed to recognize that there were people around them that they could serve, but they just didn't even recognize. They didn't see the kids of their day. Every one of us have to recognize the people that we overlook. Now, for some of us, we gravitate towards children. We gravitate towards children. Others of us are pretty intimidated with kids. And we, we, might, we, might be, we might be a little more afraid of that person sitting three pews back and one seat over. There are people that you and I tend to, to not want to interact with. And one of the things that Jesus says and does here, he's, he puts a kid who has nothing to, to offer to these great apostles and he puts this kid in the middle of him and says, will you receive them like you'd receive me? Think of it. He says, would you receive this child like you would receive the almighty God in the flesh? Do you welcome them like that? If you, if you knew that this afternoon in your own home, some famous celebrity was coming over for lunch, what would you do? I mean, obviously you clean up the living room. You, am I right? I mean, you'd at least do that. Doubtless the kitchen will get a touch-up. You close two or three doors. You'd immediately start put the coffee on. You might get an extra thing or two from the grocery store. You are working hard to make the place more welcoming than it currently is. Am I right? And, and imagine if the king of glory was welcomed into your own house, Jesus himself, if you knew that he was going to come this afternoon and hang out with you. But Jesus says, he, he does something interesting. He says, the little kids... 
these, these ones that just need service and have nothing to offer you to your advantage. Their business card will not help you in any way. That will you welcome these little kids the way that I welcome you? You know, I have some more slides up there, but I'm gonna, uh, Steve, I'm going to hold off on them for now. I'm going to hold off on them for now. I would like to end right now with, a, uh, with the, the wrapping up of the story of St. Patrick. When it comes to Jesus and the way he served, sometimes we need, we need examples of what that looks like. And uh, St. Patrick, again, that's what we know him as today, but uh, he, after he, after he went home and he had spent some years with his family, fairly out of the blue, he had a, a vision uh, to calling him back to Ireland, the people who had enslaved him and mistreated him. And he was a bit intimidated at first. But God called him, and the, and the particular phrase when this, in this vision, this, this opening of the scroll, what he heard was his voice that said, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. And that was the appeal that he received from God when he heard from Ireland this voice crying out, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. And he decided to go, and he left. And he went to Ireland, a place that he had had nothing but bad memories, except for the fellowship he'd had with God. And he went there as a missionary. And he, in the next generation, turned Ireland upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the entire, everywhere he went, he didn't come with any posture of greatness. Because there were attempts of him being poisoned, of him being stoned, of him being imprisoned for many days and weeks on end. He was not well welcomed in Ireland. And yet he went everywhere spreading the good news of Jesus Christ as their servant and as their slave. He was now free. He could go wherever he wanted to. And he went back to Ireland. Because God had called him to be a light in the darkness. But friends, when we look at Jesus Christ, we recognize that he perfectly embodied what he preached. He gave up control at the cross. Just like those, just like those disciples were being called to give up all their control. And he was delivered, as it says, into the hands of men. He allowed his father's agenda to be done. He prayed and he listened to God like our status and our standing depended on it. And now he can receive each and every single one of us because of what he did for us at the cross. I hope that as we come to, to break bread this morning that we can remember all that Christ did for us. And then on top of that, we can also say, Lord, how can I be a servant to the people who I'm sitting with right now? How can I be a servant to my own family where there's desperate scenarios how can I be a, fa a witness, Lord, and a light to my neighborhood? Father, we ask you in the strong name of Jesus Christ that you would help each one of us in our weakness. There are some of us who today feel like that father who have absolutely no control on our child or on our parent who is running from you and fleeing from you and harming themselves regularly. There are some scenarios that are overwhelming that some of us are facing, and we ask you for the grace and the humility 
to be able to pray like that father. Father, I believe. Jesus, I believe. But help my unbelief. We love you, we trust you, and we do praise things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.